Okay, I believe we're on page 16, and uh, we are in the middle of talking about the general works of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked last time about His working in creation and about His work in common grace. Uh, we've got two more topics in this general work section, which I hope to get done tonight, and then next week we'll start into the next circle, the next narrower circle, the Holy Spirit's work among believers. But for now, we're talking about his general work uh, among all people here. So we're going to start here on page 16, talking about the Holy Spirit and his relationship to sin, uh, most specifically in suppressing sin. Uh, we'll start here with the work of the conscience. And I have the key text written out here for you, I believe. Uh, so Romans 2, 14 to 15, there are other texts that talk about our conscience which we'll, we will refer to, uh, but uh, uh, here's one that uh, is a key text. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. And so that's a definition here of what the conscience does. It's the work of the law written in the heart that bears witness, alternately accusing or defending. So we have a definition that pulls all those things together. Here's a, here's a case in which uh, the, the, the word is the sum of its parts. Oftentimes we have words that have nothing to do with the sum of their parts, you know, like a butterfly has nothing to do with butter or flies. Uh, but here conscience is one of these words. Con means together, and science, which would be knowledge. So what we have here is a common knowledge. That is something that all people have, a knowledge that all people have in common because it is written on the table of their heart. So it's the moral awareness of right and wrong shared by all people in God's image. It prompts people to do what is right and rebukes people when they do wrong. So they accuses or defends. It's part of common grace. Uh, because all people have it. People who have the law, people who don't have the law. You don't have to inform someone that lying is wrong. It's known. doesn't mean they don't lie, but if they do understand immediately, uh, without any sort of instruction, uh, what right and wrong is. It's applied universally to all people as part of the image of God. Now, we are talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, and I would say technically this is not a direct work of the Holy Spirit. I think that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to restrain sin, and we'll talk about some specifics as we go along here. Uh, but this technically is not a direct work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and we'll see why here in a minute. I'd say it's an innate providential mechanism, and it can be reprogrammed. That's why I say it is not a direct work of the Holy Spirit, because if it was a direct work of the Holy Spirit, it would be uniform and would always tell people exactly the same thing. But we find out in scriptures that something can happen to our consciences so that it no longer sends the right signals, right? So we find, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4, 2, that the conscience can become seared, you know, distorted, twisted, damaged through habitual disregard. And uh, we, all, we all understand that when we have specific sins that we become so habituated to that we no longer feel that twang of conscience when we do them. Um, 
hopefully you don't get too much of that, but I think we all recognize that that, that, that happens. So a conscience can be seared. It can also be weakened or confused so that it sends false signals. And I have there as an example uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. You remember the, uh, uh, the, the discussion here uh, where there are certain people who were living in Corinth who had been part of the idolatrous, the idolatry practice that was going on there in the city, and they had gotten saved, they're trying to resist sin, and they got confused and they thought it was wrong to eat meat. And what does Paul say? Well, you morons, you can always eat meat. No, no, he doesn't say that. No. No, he says, well, you are incorrect, but... If you think it's wrong, because your conscience is telling you that it's wrong, then you shouldn't do it, because even though, and here's the, here's the irony of it, even though it's not wrong to eat meat, if you eat meat thinking that it's wrong, intending to sin, then it's wrong for you. And so, so your conscience can be seared, it can be damaged, weakened, confused, so that it sends false signals. Uh, and that's a false signal. We, we find elsewhere in Scripture it's perfectly fine to eat meat. Um, I don't know if there's any vegetarians here, but uh, you know Genesis 9 tells us that you know I've given you every animal of the field so you may freely eat. And then in Acts, when Paul was uh, Peter was about to go to Cornelius, and you know, these animals come down in, in a sheet, and Paul says, "No, no." Peter says, "No, no, no. I'm not going to eat that meat." And what does what does the what what is the response? I've said it's clean. It's clean. You can eat this meat. And so then he goes to the Gentiles who are, you know, who typically will eat meats that were not kosher. Uh, so it was okay to eat meat. But if you think it's wrong to eat meat because your conscience has been reprogrammed so that it sends these incorrect signals, why then you better not eat. Okay, so that's that's the first work of the Holy Spirit, I say. It's not a direct work of the Holy Spirit, but I think he's ultimately responsible, since he is responsible for all uh, manifestations of common grace. But it is not a direct work. Conviction, on the other hand, is a direct work of the Holy Spirit. Again, I have a key text written out here for you, John 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So what is this conviction? Apparently this is a step up uh, from the work of conscience. So what is it? Well, I say here, special work of the Holy Spirit, employing the word of God, convincing a sinner of his guilt, his need for righteousness, and the reality of impending judgment. Okay. So you can see here the term convince. I recognize that this word convict is simply an old way of saying the word convince. Uh, so don't think it's some sort of a technical word. It simply means to convince. We could supply the word convince and it would carry the, the exact same meaning. So, yeah. So when it says he will, when he comes, he will convict the world. So to that point, he would not 
Can I can I can I hold off on that? Absolutely. Question? Yeah, that that that's coming up. How did you get to it? Yeah, we will. We will definitely get to that. Um, yeah, I, I think there was a con uh, we're, in fact we'll we'll talk just for a point of of this at the bottom of the page, but we'll get into a little bit more of a discussion later on about some of the new ministries of the Holy Spirit. I don't think conviction is one of them, but we'll we'll get there just just a minute. But for now, we're just defining it, defining it as a convincing work of the Holy Spirit about these three specific things. You're guilty, you need righteousness, and there's judgment coming. Okay. So, you know, there's people out there who, you know, some they aren't under conviction. They're just not particularly troubled by their guilt. They're not particularly troubled by the fact that they need righteousness. And if, if there is some sort of judgment, it's a long way off, and I'm not particularly worried about it. Well, those people do not experience here the work of conviction. Okay? It resembles conscience, but it's a little bit different. It's self-consistent at this point. You know, conviction never leads you astray. It tells you to correct things. It is comprehensive and specific. It consists of the univocal testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness concerning the text of Scripture. So here we've got a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing this, and the Holy Spirit doesn't err in what he does. So it's, it's, it's a valid work of the Holy Spirit now. Now I say here, conviction isn't universal. You meet people all the time that <coughs> show no particular uh, 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 evidence of being convinced of these things. It's not common to all people. In fact, many believers never encounter the Word of God at all, so they don't even have the specifics that they need to uh, be convicted. And even those who do encounter the Word of God are not impressed equally by the Spirit with the same certitude of guilt and shame. Okay, so, you know, you you bring somebody into the church, you know, you know they're unbelievers, and they're sitting there, and, you know, the pastor gives up, you know, a rousing sermon that really cuts to the heart of what it means to be a believer. And you look, and, and you, you know, you, you, at the end of the service, you're praying, and, and you say, it's going to happen. I mean, it has to. I mean, how, how could this person fail to be convinced? I mean, that was so obvious. And you look over, and you <laughs> Yeah. So, so the work of conviction is not uniform. It doesn't always happen. Uh, Holy Spirit does not work equally among people. Okay, so conviction then includes these three factors. I draw from this verse here. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, specifically. Now, it is kind of like the work of conscience, but it's a little bit more. It convinces men not so much of their acts of sin. You know, you've lied. You know, you shouldn't lie. You've done this or that wrong. What it, what it convinces them of is their state of sinfulness. And that's why it says here in this verse, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Why does it say convicting of sin because they do not believe in me? Well, here it highlights a specific sin. It's, it's not the only sin. It's, it's the capital sin. You know, this, is, this is the chief sin. And so it highlights that. You have, you're in a state of sinfulness. You do not believe in God. Then the opposite is true as well. It convinces them of righteousness. Again, not that it convinces people that, like, you know, the conscience defends them. Okay, you told the truth there. You know, you didn't tell a lie this time. You told the truth. 
Well, that's what that's the function of conscience. Uh, but conviction goes a step further. It, it, it convinces men of their lack of righteousness. There is a there is this this holiness of God that they fall short of. I do not have the righteousness that is necessary to commend me to God. Okay, so that's and that's why it says then, because concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Now what? You take a look at that verse and say, okay, what does that have to do with righteousness? I'm leaving. What? What? And there's sort of a disconnect. But I think the point here is uh, there's a need for true holiness that's found only in the atoning work of Christ and the fact that Christ dies, rises, and goes to his Father and is received by him is a demonstration of the fact, one, that you need holiness to be accepted before God, and secondly, there's a means to it. God has, you know, Jesus has left. He's been received by the Father. And so, uh, so his own righteousness is acceptable God, and he has fulfilled his mission to make righteousness available. And so that's, that's, the, that's the point of him leaving. That's why it says here, of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Third point, then, is judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit convinces men of their liability to judgment for sin. And how do we know we're going to be judged for our sin? Well, because Satan, the greatest and most powerful of all sinners, stands judged. So you don't have a chance if the greatest and most powerful of sinners has been judged. So all of these things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so there's there's some specificity to the work of the Holy Spirit in in conviction that goes beyond conscience. Yes. I was just going to say, I'm going back up a little bit, but uh, point B, mm-hmm. where it says conviction is not universal, and it says, further, not all who, who do encounter the word of God are impressed equally by the spirit of the same certitude of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Can you expound on that a little bit more? I mean, how is it that, you know, with the same Holy Spirit, Indwelling us and another brother. Well, I think we've we've got the same question here that you have when you ask why is it that God elects some people and doesn't elect others? If it's a why question, I don't know. Why why does the Holy Spirit extend conviction? to some unbelievers and not to others. I can't tell you. Uh, but it is it is does seem like there's there's a series of works. They're not we, we tend to lump all the work of the Holy Spirit together in sort of a one lump work, the Holy Spirit, you know, telling us something. But it it does seem like there is a progression. One, there's conscience that tells us it's sort of like a toggle, that's right, that's wrong. Conviction convinces us convinces us of specific things concerning our our standing before God. But it still doesn't bring us to the point of salvation. Because you you have the the proverbial person gripping the pew in front of them, and then they walk away. So there does seem to be another work additional, and we'll talk about that later on, because with the work of the Holy Spirit in believers, that's illumination. Uh, But why is it that it is that way? I I, I don't know. I, I understand. 
uh, I talked with a brother about speaking in tongues before. And he was very sincere, and we opened you know, the scriptures and evaluated them. And I mean, he was sincere on you know, learning what the scriptures had to say about that. And he came to one conclusion, <laughs> and I came to the other. And well, I'm not sure that that's a matter so much of conviction as it is a matter of an, really of interpretation as much as anything in this case. Um, conviction, I think, is, is, a, is a narrower work than what what you're talking about there. Conviction is more about one standing before God. It has to do with sin, righteousness, judgment. So we're probably not talking at this point about specifics of doctrine, or whether baptism is for infants or for believers, or whether speaking in tongues is for today or for, for first century only. That That's more a matter of interpretation, for one, and, and then I think also possibly including there also illumination. The illumination, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, whereby I take a look at the Word of God and I am and I am persuaded by it. I, I yield to it. I submit to it. So, that, that, I think, ends up into those categories where conviction is a more basic idea. We'll get to those illumination and interpretation here as we go along. But right now, I think we're talking about a more basic work than what you're talking about there. When God's work is presented, the gospel is presented, is the Holy Spirit always working? Because I know you can go to church and hear the gospel three or four times and never... Yeah, but, no, say, but yeah. that one time it clicks and all right. of a sudden you're yeah the Holy Spirit and just like uh, John 3 says the wind blows wherever it wants to you don't know when it's coming where it's coming uh, but so I mean, there's the word of God is true in all that it affirms and that doesn't change but as far as the Holy Spirit's working to make people submissive to it is not always operative. <coughs> okay. Good questions tonight. Moving on here to point D then. Conviction may be the direct work of the Holy Spirit, as it is here in this passage in John 16, or it may be mediated by other believers. In fact, interestingly enough, Matthew 18, 15 just to pull one of those extra texts out, is that text on church discipline, right? You know, if you see that your brother has a sin, go and talk to him. Between you and him alone, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Okay? But the word that's used there is the same word here you, that is translated convict in Genesis, in John 16, 8. Go convict your brother. It's really, that's how it could be translated same term. Go convict your brother. If he falls under conviction, <laughs> then everything's, everything's good. If he doesn't, then take it to the next step. Take it two or three with you. Convict him with two or three others. If that doesn't work, take it to the whole church and, and so forth. You know the, you know the sequence there. Uh, but the conviction here may be mediated by believers. So we have it in that case that you may be an agent of, the, of conviction uh, by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, part part of the answer to your question here, uh, because of the lack of references to the direct work of the Holy Spirit, 
in conviction in the Old Testament, and because John 16.8 is cast in the future tense, he will, some have suggested that the work of conviction is confined to the New Testament. If you read Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, he argues this. But it's pretty clear that at the very minimum, conviction has to occur in some sense in the Old Testament. People do have to be convinced that the Bible is true, irrespective of whether you live in the New Testament or whether you live in the Old Testament. That does seem to be a necessary step in the salvation process. You have to you know, be exposed to the Word of God. You have to be convinced that it is true. And then you, the work, the work of, of submitting to it has to go on, too. So you've got the Holy Spirit's activities that almost have to be. There has to be something that causes us to be convinced that it's true. And there's got to be something that causes us to yield to it. And it's not as though there's a different doctrine of man or a doctrine, different doctrine of sin in the Old Testament. So there has to be, I think the, it becomes theologically necessary that there is some kind of activity of convicting in the Old Testament. So what do we do with these texts? Now the fact that the Holy Spirit's work of conviction is cast in the future tense here likely points to a renewal of his ministry with a newly updated base of revelation, Christ and the forthcoming revelations of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, there are specific things here that the Holy Spirit is convicting of that he would not have been convicting Old Testament saints of, at least with this specificity. In the Old Testament, they would not have known about Jesus to believe in him. And they had promises about a about a seed, and then, you know, it does seem to take something of a personalized form if you work through Isaiah and all. But they didn't they didn't know about Jesus specifically, particularly early on in the Old Testament. So they wouldn't have had that information. Uh, they wouldn't have known that Jesus was going to die on the cross, go to the Father and be received by him as a perfect satisfaction for sin. They they had a promise that the, the ruler of this world would be judged, but he wasn't yet. And so there does seem to be a new base of material that the Holy Spirit is working with. But as far as the activity, the basic activity of the Holy Spirit in convicting, seems, it seems theologically necessary that that was, that was happening. He's got new material to work with, and he's going to again come and resume his ministry as the primary agent of conviction. I mean, Jesus was here for a while. In, in, in a sense, what the Holy Spirit's work was in the Old Testament it sort of backs off. Jesus is here now. But now Jesus is going to go away. The Holy Spirit's going to resume. And he's going to actually have a new base of material to work with. So that's that's my that's my my quick answer to your question that yes, there is something new, new data, a resumption of the Holy Spirit's activity of conviction, but it seems theologically necessary that there was something like that happening in the Old Testament. So then in the Old Testament, would the prophets have been sort of that? Yeah, they could have been agents of, of conviction. Uh, I, I would have said that any believer in the Old Testament okay. could have been an agent of, of conviction. Kind of like with David. Right, yeah. You know, Nathan comes along and says, you know, gives him a little parable of the man. There, there's, I think that we've got an instance there where he recognizes his standing and, and, and responds accordingly. So 
There does seem to be some theological necessity that conviction is going on in the Old Testament, even though it may not have looked exactly the same as it does now. We've got something similar going on in the Old Testament. It seems almost necessary theologically. So when, yes. when Christ was, uh, when Jesus himself says, I, I, if I say he can't come, <laughs> right? He's talking about the Spirit, right? right? He says, unless I go, he can't come. Right? It is the work. Right? So he's leaving and in place right. of the Holy Spirit, right? Right, and, and so the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to resume his place. And then also, I think, Part, part of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus has to go away and rece- be received by the Father. Mm-hmm. So he stays around, never received by the Father. Then there's, there's, there's this seed there's of doubt that's planted. Um, maybe, maybe the Father didn't accept that, what he did on the cross. Maybe, maybe it wasn't good enough. And so it does seem like there, it is, there is a necessity placed on God, Jesus to leave one, to set in order the new order of things, but also to complete some of this, his cross work so that the ministry of the Holy Spirit of conviction could go, can go forward. Okay? Conviction, I say here, is exercised by means of the Word of God so it's not just some sort of a conviction that uh, you know you're, you're walking out at night and you know you're move away from the city and there's lights and you see the stars and you know it, and well that's not that's not what conviction is. Conviction it seems in Scripture is almost always attached to the Word of God. I'm not going to have you turn to each one of these, but I, that's I'll read them. I have them written out here. Everyone who does evil hates the light, but he so he does not come to the light in for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Same word again. I mean, this this, this is one of those words that's translated about fifty different ways in, in English here. They people do not come to the light in order that their deeds will not be convicted. <laughs> is the word Apollos in Acts 18, he powerfully convicted, refuted, the word that's in my translation, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Well, how do you convict someone with the scriptures? 2 Timothy 4.2, this word of exhortation to preachers, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convict, rebuke, exhort. Again, it's translated reprove in, my, in, in the translation I use. It's, it's one of those words that's translated a whole different, bunch of different ways. Same word, though. That's, the op, that's one of the purposes of the preacher. He is to convict. Titus 1.9, hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you will be able to refute, convict, those who contradict. James 2.9 when you commit sin, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So whenever, almost every time, there's a couple of exceptions, almost every time you see this term used in Scripture, it's connected here with the Word. So every, every one of those verses, it's the Word or the law or the Scriptures, those are the things that come together, and that's what you use in order to convict. So I say, again, it's, it's something of a narrow work. It's not just anything that's convinced. There's, there's, there's specificity to it. 
Conviction is exercised on both regenerate and unregenerate people. Um, the world here in John 16, 8, our main text, he will convince the world. He will convince the ungodly in Jude, verse 15. It's also experienced by professing believers. This passage on church discipline, again, is one that uh, shows that you can be convinced or convicted uh, that you've done something wrong. You need to, you need to correct that in order to be restored to fellowship with a believer or even with the, with the church. Next point, conviction is sometimes effective, sometimes it's not. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If not, take it to the next step. And you can find this as well. Um, in Jude 15, in fact, we find uh, that uh, it is as God is casting people into hell that they are convicted. They're convinced at that point. can't do anything about it at that point. But they're convinced at that point. Yeah, my standing not what it ought to be, sober thought. Being cast into hell, and I recognize now my standing before God is not what it needed to be. And I'm done. So sometimes it's effective, sometimes it's not. Now, and for that reason, I don't like to think that uh, this is the same thing as the call to salvation. Okay, the, the call to salvation is, is, an, is an efficacious thing. There's an efficacious call to salvation. Conviction is not that. Uh, so because it can be resisted, it can be ineffective in, in bringing people to salvation. So I think it's a different word entirely than the call to salvation. Yeah. Okay. Questions then on conviction? Yes, sir. It kind of, uh, well, this is kind of rough. It says, um, you know, a guy can be there in church holding on the rail and walk out like nothing. Is that... Can that be like broadly used as he wasn't going to be chosen to be in with? Right. I, I, there, there is a sense in which, it, I mean, it, there is a sense in which there is a calling that may be resisted, uh, but there is an efficacious call that is not. Um, so, yeah, those who are, those are who are chosen, those are called. Those who are called, those are justified. So there is this, there is this sequence that goes goes forward. So. If if you're elect, then you'll go through this entire sequence. Uh, but there are those who, at some point along the way, do not do not break into that sequence. And so it seems so like I've had lots of chances all through my life. I look back now, uh -huh. and it's just kind of I don't know what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Only ten. Right. Well, I kind of I, I think it's I think it's very true that what what makes the call to salvation efficacious is not the conviction, it's the illuminating or generating work of the Holy Spirit. At some point along the way, God not only issued this summons for you to accept him, he also made it possible and even necessary that you would. But conviction itself is not that efficacious work that causes people uh, to believe. Next, we're switching gears here a little bit here, talking about the Holy Spirit's work in Revelation. Revelation. And I, I, I didn't know exactly where to put that here, uh, but I put it in his general working here. 
the Holy Spirit is active, it seems, in uh, in all 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 aspects of revelation. We're going to start here with general revelation. Um, everything that we see out out in in, the, in, a, in our in our wonderful universe, every every bit of the image of God in us is implanted there by the uh, Holy Spirit, and so He is, I say, de facto, the agent of general revelation. And so this truth that we derive from natural revelation is mediated by the Holy Spirit. They don't just exist out there; they're they're mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to prophetism, Old Testament prophetism, I think we see the Holy Spirit particularly keenly at work. Here, here there's no question that the Holy Spirit is involved. And uh, you know, if we, uh, we could look, look all these up here, but uh, maybe we can, uh, uh, somebody want to, maybe we can just go around the, the classroom and just uh, look ahead here and grab a couple of these verses and and somebody here can read them as we go along. Uh, so uh, um, we'll, we'll see if the, the Holy Spirit can't work here. Make sure everybody gets, every one of these verses gets taken. So Numbers 24-2, anybody found that one yet? I got it. Okay. Can we read one anyway? Or? Sure, that's fine. Okay. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered this oracle, or his oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the one whose eyes sees clearly. Okay. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Balaam, in this case, and he utters this prophetic oracle. Now, the reason I put this in the work of the, ge- the general work of the Holy Spirit is because Balaam does not seem to be a paragon of virtue. In fact, later on in the New Testament, we find that he is, is lifted up as, as sort of the model of evil. <laughs> right, so it, it, he's, not, he's not a believer here. But the Holy Spirit did come upon him so that he uttered an oracle. The Holy Spirit was active here. 1 Samuel 19, 20 and 23. So he sent men to capture him. This is Saul sent men to capture David. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. And verse 23 says, So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. Now, some people will look at these verses and say, aha, uh, Saul must have been a believer here. Well, I'm not sure that this verse is very convincing to me. Not only do we have the example of Balaam, who the Holy Spirit came upon, and he was, he was wicked to the core. Well, Saul's going after David to try and kill, kill, kill him. But it doesn't look like he's, he's exercising too much sanctification if he's a, if he's a believer. And so, so, Bala, so Saul comes along here, and... and he, the guy's got something of a sense of humor here. Uh, he, he comes along and says, eh, I don't want you doing that. And so he comes upon him, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and says, he was prophesying. So he's walking along with this group of prophets, and he's prophesying. I don't know what he was saying. Uh, 
curious to know, but, uh, but he's prophesying. The Holy Spirit's coming upon him to prophesy. Well, let's see if we can't get some good examples here. Second Samuel 23, verse 2. So this is reference here to David. Uh, David says here, the Holy Spirit spoke by me, his word was on my tongue, which I think gives us a little bit of the a flavor of the conflation that goes on uh, in the minds of the prophets, so that the Holy Spirit is actually, be, his, his words are actually being spoken by the prophet. The prophet becomes a direct spokesman for God, a conduit. It's not just that the, the, the prophets are giving a report of what God told him. He's actually being a spokesman for God. And so that's uh, David here as a prophet. Uh, Nehemiah 9, verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets that they paid no attention. But you handed them over to the neighboring people. Okay, so you admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Ezekiel 11, verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say thus, says, says the Lord, so you think house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. Okay. So the Spirit comes upon Ezekiel, the prophet, such that he was able to say, Thus saith the Lord. And it's this, this phrase that often starts these... Uh, prophetic announcement. It's not me speaking here. <coughs> this is the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Micah 3, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression to Israel his sin. Okay, so the declaration here of the prophet is by means of his being filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is very actively involved here in prophetism. Now, it is kind of interesting that these false prophets, that there are false prophets out there that follow false spirits as well. Um, sometimes the false spirits would simply make things up. But there were occasions in which they would actually follow false spirits. Uh, that is, they would perhaps be demon-possessed or at least demon-influenced, so that they're actually uh, offering a message that comes from a false spirit. In fact, we've got this very curious incident here in 1 Kings 22. A spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice, I will entice someone to sin. The Lord said, how are you going to do this? He said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. He's trying to convince one of the kings to go to war here. Then God said, well, you are to entice him and also to prevail. Go and do so. Now, now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So, a very curious, I mean, there's a lot of why and what, what's going on here in that, that kind of, this passage here. But there, the point that we're trying to make here is even the false prophets would be following spirits themselves. 
um, but uh, in, in order to say their words, now, how exactly the mechanism works, I am, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Uh, but uh, prophetism is genuine prophetism is, 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 is sourced by spirits outside oneself. How did it happen? It's unclear, I say here. Scripture simply tells us they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what 2 Peter 1 says. Holy men of God were uh, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And uh, you, want to, you, want, you want details, so why? <coughs> Unfortunately, they're not forthcoming. Abraham Kuyper perhaps puts it best when he says it this way. The prophets now possess the divine thought with this result that he is conscious of the same idea which a moment ago existed only in God. Not only do they possess this divine thought, but they also express it, so that the words and meanings expressed in prophecy are the words and meanings intended by God. So that's what prophetism is. Uh, being a prophet is being a spokesman, a direct spokesman, a conduit for God. And for that reason, I, I hesitate. I know some people use the word prophecy to describe preaching, um, you know, he, he's, a, he's a real prophet, uh, perhaps by the way he speaks, or uh, because he's up there being a spokesman for God. But that's in a in a very mediated sense. It's not as though God's actually speaking through him. He actually picked up the word of God. You know, he studied it. Uh, he he put together a message and delivered it. Uh, so is he a spokesman for God? Well, certainly not in any sort of inerrant and absolutely authoritative sense. So my preference is not to use the word prophecy to describe preaching. I know it's sometimes done popularly. Uh, but it seems that when prophecy is used in Scripture, it means more than that. It means you're a direct spokesman for God so that you're giving his message inerrantly and authoritatively. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I follow. We're going to revisit prophecy later on here when we talk about New Testament prophecy. Uh, and the question is, is that is the same thing going on today? And uh, there's, there's quite a discussion that goes on about New Testament prophecy. But for now, we're just talking about old. And so that's, uh, that's all we have to talk about right now. I also have here a section, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And you say, well, where's, why, is that, why is that in here? Well, because I think the what the... The Holy Spirit's primary activity with respect to Jesus in his earthly ministry was to reveal who he was. That is, to to attest to him as the Messiah and to the truth of his message. Uh, So it it fits here under his revealing ministry. So that's why I put it in with prophetism and inspiration. I put his ministry with the Holy Spirit. And I say here... Uh, start with the Hebrews 1, 3. Remember God, after he spoke long ago with, to the fathers and the prophets, many portions, many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son. So the Son is the culmination, I say, of divine revelation. Now, what Jesus is is not influenced by the Holy Spirit. But it does appear that all through the entirety of Christ's life, he has, has a great dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he's under the constant, I say here, constant supervision of the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry. It starts at the birth of Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary so that what is conceived in her is the Son of God. 
you say, how did that happen? I'm not sure exactly. Where did that, you know, where did that Y chromosome come from? Well, miraculously uh, in, in put there, placed there in Mary, and so uh, the Holy Spirit, though, is responsible for it. So he is, in some sense, even responsible for the, I can say here, the, the production of the God-Man, you know, this 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 uh, this this human form of Jesus, of course, incubated in the womb of womb of Mary, and so fully human. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is responsible for the production of this of this infant Jesus. So apparently, it was something of a Trinitarian effort. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit is active in the birth of Christ. He's very active in the ministry of Christ. Now, here's here's the question here about the kenosis. Some some folks would say that when Christ comes to earth, he has absolutely no control over his own uh, his own attributes, so that uh, he is he is sort of at the mercy of of God. He has no independent use of his attributes. He's got he's just sort of pushed around by the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's quite quite that stark. Uh, but there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is responsible for imparting and him, to him certain aspects of knowledge. You know, why doesn't Jesus know in his human mind when he's going to return? Well, because it hasn't been revealed to him. Right? It's not in the human brain of Jesus. The second person of the Godhead knows. He's omniscient. But that datum of information apparently wasn't placed into the human brain of Jesus. And so he's able to say, I, I, I don't know. Okay, so, now, I say that, I, I, I'm, I understand that Christ retained full use of his attributes as God, but the human part of his union did not always share the full benefit of those attributes. So the Holy Spirit is active in the ministry of Christ. Uh, we find this in several of the statements of Christ. John 8, I do nothing on my own initiative, he says. I only speak these things that the Father has sent me, has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So he's, he's not acting independently here. Uh, really, the Trinity, none of the persons of the Trinity ever act independently of the others, but Jesus certainly can <coughs> say that. I, I'm, not, I'm not just here on my own. The Father sent me, and he who sent me is with me. Acts 1, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, gave orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there's some sense in which Jesus, being God, nonetheless represents a, a, is a prophet, in that he is a spokesman for God, because he, through the Holy Spirit, gives instructions to the apostles. Hebrews 9, in fact, Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. So the Holy Spirit is even involved here in the cross work of Christ. Not that he died, uh, but he he is a part of the effort. It's a Trinitarian effort that's going on. Find that the Holy Spirit also indwelt Christ. And it doesn't mean that he was located inside of him, but because the Holy Spirit's omnipresent. But here, it does seem like there is something going on here, an interaction 
of the Spirit with the person of Christ. And we talk about indwelling. It has to do with the articulation of the mind of the Spirit with the mind of man. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about indwelling of believers. But for now, let's say this. Uh, when the Holy Spirit indwelt you, it's not as though he was somehow metaphysically absent and now he's there. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, he's... I mean, the Holy Spirit is God. He's everywhere. But there is a certain function of the Holy Spirit that was not in place. Now the Holy Spirit is indwelling, that is, he is intersecting with your mind, his mind with yours, so that you are acting in a godly manner, uh, you are advancing in your sanctification, and that's what indwelling causes, causes. Well, it says here that Christ himself was indwelt. And, in fact, we find in John 3, it says that to Christ is given the Spirit without measure. Every time we receive the Holy Spirit as sinners <coughs> saved by grace, there is always some resistance, uh, some misapplication of the activity of the Holy Spirit in us, such that we don't always respond as we ought to the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. But here, the Holy Spirit is given to Christ without measure. That is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfettered giving of the Holy Spirit so that, the, so that Christ always did exactly what he was supposed to do. He had, the, as I say here, the unfettered power of the Holy Spirit at his immediate disposable at all times. And it's true, like the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels because he had, he had the authority and power of the Holy Spirit immediately available at all times. He could call upon. So the Holy Spirit indwelt Christ. He directed Christ's activities. In Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit anointed Christ at his baptism. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that in, in a bit here when we talk about this anointing ministry. It's a thread that runs its way through the Old Testament and culminates with Christ. There is an anointing work that is given to the King of Israel. And it culminates here in the final king of Israel, Jesus. And uh, when he is anointed, he begins his earthly ministry. At, uh, and he's, he's been alive for, some would say, 30 years. Uh, but he hasn't really embarked upon his messianic mission yet. And he's just living the ordinary life of a carpenter up to this point. But he launches his messianic mission here after he is baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit runs this. He empowers the proclamations and prophetic utterances of Christ. Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, so this prophetic empowerment, part of his anointing, um, doesn't have a connection with contemporary preaching. It's something that Jesus had specifically as a prophet and king. And then, finally, the Holy Spirit enables Christ's performance of miracles. In fact, we have this very important passage that goes on here in Matthew 12. You know, Jesus has been doing a great variety of miracles up to this point, and uh, 
something, there's an event here that happens in Matthew 12 that's critical, and it's a critical juncture in the life of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's accused here uh, by, the, uh, by the Pharisees of doing what? Doing miracles in what? The power of Beelzebub. Uh, he's doing these, these things in the power of Satan. And, and so here, he, he makes this statement, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. you know, if, if I am doing, if I am casting out the name of Beelzebub, which really makes no sense, he goes on to explain, then I'm, then I'm a false prophet. But, if I am doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit, then the, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And yet, they persisted in attributing the works and words of Jesus to Satan. And what does he say? Well, you've committed what? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay. Where, where did that come from? Well, because the Spirit of God had come upon him such that he was doing messianic kinds of miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true... This is the offer of the Messianic Kingdom right here. Yeah. It's one thing to reject you know, preachers, teachers. But this, this is a rejection of the Holy Spirit. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven. And after this point, what happens? Well, he sort of he starts using these parables, confusing people, and, you know, these crowds start uh, uh, twittering away here to and so, so there's there's nothing left, and you know the prophet, the, the apostles are like, "What are you doing?" And Jesus says, "Well, this is this is anticipated. Uh, this is what I was intending to do. These people have not been given minds to see, um, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a mind to understand, but you have. And so I'm singling you out now for specific ministry and preparation for this." this new era that's about to dawn here, now that the kingdom has been rejected, now that the Jews have said no to their Messiah, now I'm turning to the Gentiles, and so I'm trying to make preparations for that. But it all comes to a head at this event here where he is doing miracles, messianic kinds of miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they said, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's Satan. And said, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We can't be forgiven. Make sense? Does that follow? Okay. Questions? Well, two more points here. The Holy Spirit and the sufferings of Jesus. We already looked at this verse. Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Just as the Holy Spirit sustained Christ in his earthly ministry, so also the Spirit sustained him in his death and also in his resurrection. Romans 8 says this, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also grant life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Which is a comforting thought on which to close tonight. You know, it, it, the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that is going to raise you up. And, uh, some of you have relatives, friends, 
acquaintances that have gone on, and then we have this statement here, that the same the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also raise you from the dead as well. Okay? Questions here on the uh, Holy Spirit and the ministry of Christ? Yeah, we didn't quite get to the end of this section I wanted to tonight, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll pick up and talk about the Holy Spirit and inspiration, and then we'll walk, walk into specifically the work of the Holy Spirit and believers. Okay, so we will see you. There's no more questions. We'll see you in another week. Okay.